DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Today, I'm super excited to welcome a guest whose leadership talk at DevCom last year was one of my all-time favorites. He's the CEO at Red Hill Games. Thank you for joining me, Matthias. Thank you, thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Um, I'm super happy. It, to it's be the here. truth. Well, uh, that's that's usually a good way to go. But uh, I'm I'm humbled. Um, that that's very kind of kind of you to say so. Uh, thank you, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm serious about it because we when I. Um, yeah, when we started this podcast series and uh, you know we're thinking about who who would want to have uh, on the episodes then uh, your name was definitely the first that came to mind because i was really excited about uh, hearing your talk um, previously and i said you know i i gotta get you on the show so i'm very happy to to have you here today um but despite that i did not feel like i would pronounce your last name correctly so that's why i just called you matthias i hope that's okay uh, I'm okay with Matthias, Matthias, it doesn't really matter. When when you have a last name, um, Müllerin, uh, M-Y-L-L-Y-R-I-N-N-E, um, you know, sometimes you give up. Uh, my kid brother lives in, in, in LA, and when he books a restaurant or something, he just goes, I'm Mr. Millerini, <laughs> which is not, also not, not, yeah, not anything like the original pronunciation. But yeah, I, I think those are the names uh, eventually that you change when, when uh, you change countries. But no, I'm, I'm, um, so Müllerin uh, is, is the name. Uh, you're, you're in Cyprus right now. So how do people uh, in Cyprus deal with the name? Uh, I'm mainly known as Matias Obstrovolos. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Strobolos is, is the part of town, and if you order enough takeout from your favorite sushi place, they're going, oh, it is you, Matthias of Strobolos. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a man of many names, I, I see. Apparently, yes. And I always yeah. thought that sounds... German names are complicated, but apparently they're not. <laughs> ah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was funny. Like, uh, we went through some of the, um, and this is going so off topic, we need to edit this out, but. Um, well, I don't know we, about that. We... Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, 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 our, so our sons are called Eino and Ero, and Eino comes from uh, being being the one who rules with the sword, and then um, I think Ero is Eigenbond, he who rules alone. So you have two sons with those names, one who rules with a sword and one who rules alone. I think we'll be in, in trouble eventually. Cool. But uh, yeah, it's the, the history of names is, is, is interesting. Maybe I got it the other way around. But anyway, so. <laughs> no, thanks, thanks for thanks for clarifying this. So before we uh, before you start talking about leadership for like the next five hours or so, I mean, just kidding. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Let's see. Uh, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and your company, Red Hill Games? Oh, sure. Um, so I started um, super, super lucky. Uh, I played games as a kid, like uh, lived in around the world. And, and back in the day, uh, my parents brought a IBM compatible computer to Manila, where I was uh, living with my family. And then me and my brother played the hell out of that. And then kind of that was the beginning of the journey. Uh, and this is like early 80s. And, and then... You know, in 99, I joined Remedy, uh, which was then like 18 people. I was the first guy who never worked on games or you know, never did art or tech or whatever. And I helped that company to grow and, and, and go and, and you know, become kind of, I, I hope in, in my own way, to become the company it is today and, and, and be successful. And I was there for 16 years and then I went to Wargaming. Um, looked after and was responsible for the console and PC studios for, for three years. And after that, I decided it was time to do our own thing. And then Red Hill Games kind of was, was kind of incepted when me and, and some friends I really, really loved working with came together. And, and then we started to, to build our first team-based kind of shooter. Um, and it, it, it's been a long journey, you know, going from anywhere from a startup uh, back in the day, uh, late '90s, we didn't even call it that uh, then. But yeah, um, you know, going from there to leading 2,000 developers around the world and being responsible for that, and then, you know, going back and and building your own thing. But I, I've always loved working with talent. I've always loved, um, you know, kind of 
seeing the creativity and, and how these different disciplines come together from engineering, from art and, and, and all over and kind of, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's a little bit of a passion for me to, to build something good and a good environment because we have a lot of smart people and we have a lot of people with good heart who come together from different disciplines to create something good. Even more so, I think, than in film or, or music or something. We have, you know, engineering, art, you know, all the supporting, you know, biz, HR and everything. And everything just kind of comes together and it just gels. And somehow I, I feel it's very gratifying. Yeah, I would actually share that same sentiment. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I came to the industry and still am in the industry because I enjoy it so much. It's, it's very unique, I think, to, to our industry. So yeah. um, I, I looked a bit about uh, you know at your the team. Obviously, I know some of the guys working at Red Hill. It seems like uh, that um, you know most of uh, the core team were actually people that you worked with for quite a while, like, like Remedy and Wargaming, and like you said yourself. So um, I guess there was some familiarity as well, and some you know complementary skills. I guess <laughs> that that helped you build this up, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I, th I think you know, and it's it's a cliche, uh, and I think the um, it, it's maybe overused, but A people want to work with A people, right? Yeah. Um, and and when you have folks who've really worked well together and they've been through the trial of fire and they've been through some tough spots and you know they've seen each other uh, perform. And I, I, when I say perform, uh, um, I mean, how do, how do people behave under stress? How do they behave under, a, you know, how do we carry ourselves on a bad day is how we remember each other and ourselves and what we think of ourselves. Anybody can be an awesome player on a good day. But, you know, if, if you've been through some trials together, I think there is a bond uh, that, that comes through. And then, you know, kind of you can trust this person to, you know, behave, uh, you know, rationally or, you know, uh, to be able to have grace under fire, if, if nothing yeah. else. And, and I think, you know, people you've been through a tough spot with, um, you learn to cherish and you build a certain bond. I, I certainly have, you know, that bond with, with folks. And I, I think there's a commonality that you share uh, when, when you've been through something uh, that's, you know, been high stress or, you know, something that absolutely needs to succeed or something terrible happens or whatever. And, and you carry that bond with them. You know, you know, whenever you see them, you have a connection. And, and I think with the folks I've seen and the folks that, you know, have come to Red Hill that we've worked with before together, we just have a natural connection. I mean, there is no need to, you know, build credibility or trust uh, because the trust is implicit. You know, we've seen each other, how we perform and how well we take care of each other uh, under pressure. And, and, and I, I think that's like also a big part of it is how, how do we behave towards people around us um, and you know how well do we take care of each other uh, when when you know it's it's tight you know sometimes it is yeah absolutely and it can really relate to what you were just saying um, a quick question before we dive more into the, um, the team part uh, you mentioned that um, you joined remedy not having worked in games before so you were the first kind of non-games guy to, to join the company what did you do to convince them to take you on board uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I got lucky or serendipitously, like I was born into the right place at the right time. Um, I was, uh, I did my bachelor's in uh, marketing and market research, uh, went out into the UK, uh, like late 90s, 96, uh, wrapped up my studies in Aston and Birmingham, and uh, then worked in hotels as duty manager, you know, loads of loads of things uh, and and then decided that I wanted to do something else than hotels and then met my then girlfriend now wife and decided to move to Helsinki after a couple of years and was fast on my way to go to work for Hewlett Packard in Germany um, after I'd done my MBA uh, in finance and to do like SAP integration and stuff like that, which was respectable. That's what every parent wants their child to do. It's like, here's an option package. Here's a company car. And, you know, you can wear a three piece suit, son, and you'll look just like me, you know, to quote Skid Row. Uh, but, but, you know, and 
then I met the guys from Remedy. And yeah, respectable, unfortunately, is also oftentimes very boring. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned yeah. HP because be, before they were HP, I, I worked in, in, in Germany for a company called EDS, and then they were acquired by HP. And uh, so I was in that environment for a while, and I realized this is not what I want to do. So when I told my mom I, I want to move in games, she was also like, oh, I don't know. I mean, don't you want to be in that environment where everything's a little more safe? And I was like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> so uh, I know what you're talking no. about. No, uh, and, 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 and I feel you. I mean, it's like, and my, let's, let's be honest, like my, my German wasn't awesome. And half, well, three of the five interviews were done in German. Um, and it was, it was that, that for me was interesting. I, I think you could just replace every English word with das computer, das server. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what I did. I, I don't know if you have words for those in German, but I was just going like, oh. <laughs> Well, for some yeah. we do, for some we don't. You know, depends. Yeah, but yeah. I guess it was good well, that you that you didn't start start there because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here talking today about your career no. in the games industry, right? No, and and you know, bless them, uh, wonderful people, uh, uh, very generous offer. But no, uh, jumping into uh, six weeks of cash at Remedy and then going, okay, we got we we, we got to do something about this. Uh, that was like um, it was really really uh, great. Um, in some ways, you know, it's, you literally are counting like coffee and Coke and, you know, like, and I mean, Coca-Cola <laughs> and, and, and you, and you literally are so, at least, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you literally are going through like really small things. Uh, and then you go into, you know, uh, IP contracts, publishing contracts, working contracts. Uh, and I was super lucky. Uh, I managed to convince uh, Mika Reini. Um, the CFO of, 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 well, he left Remedy a couple of years ago, but he stayed there uh, a good, I think, probably 16, 17 years as well. Um, but super, super smart guy. He was the smartest guy I knew from business school, uh, financial guy. And I pulled him away from like a finance office to take care of that side for us. And I could focus more on the leadership and the strategy and the biz dev. And then Mika would kind of uh, take care of the home base. And, and, I, and I think in many ways uh, that worked for us in, in, in uh, a per, both a personal dynamic, but also for the company. We had somebody who would kind of play more defense and somebody who would play more offense. And we were always sitting in the same room. For, so for 15 years, we sat in the same room. Um, so if, if we've ever done any good deals or, or great deals or you know, been success, uh, successful, uh, a big deal uh, of that also comes from, you know, from the biz side, goes, uh, respect goes to Mika, uh, because we were always there uh, sharing ideas. And I, I think that's important, uh, not only for, you know, like creatives like to spar and throw ideas, but I think it's also important for leadership and, and management, and, you know, to also have people they can bounce off ideas from. And you need those peers around you um, to have that. Otherwise, it gets super, super lonely. Absolutely. And I, I, I could share my own stories about this. I mean, I was with, with my previous company for about nine years before I decided to leave um, last year and um, you know, and join my current company. And, uh, you know, that, that, that feeling of loneliness, if you are um, at the top, if you will, if you are leading a company and do not have a sparing partner that you talk to every day that you can discuss ideas with, that uh, it definitely is something that really got to me. So I wanted to make sure, you know, after joining the new company that I got somebody on board that I could trust, similar to what you were saying. Um, yeah. to, to have somebody to discuss and, uh, and not have to build this relationship uh, because we already had it for many years. And, and that's super valuable. I can definitely fully agree with what you were saying about that. Yeah. So um, since we're already like in the, in the middle of leadership and, and team building, and it's another team aspect we're talking about, let's start with something um, I would say that a lot of companies are are talking about but uh, sometimes struggle uh, how to actually put it in place and what I'm talking about is fairness um, a lot of uh, companies in the games industry are discussing this how do I treat people fairly um, and does that mean treating them the same way uh, so I was wondering what your opinion is on how to be fair in a team as as a leader uh, how do you set an environment uh, where people can thrive and do you treat need to treat everybody the same way um i mean it, it's it's a really really good question uh i i spend a lot of time making sure 
that whatever I do uh, and whatever kind of we do as a company, especially towards the employees and also towards the partners, is it fair? Um, and you know how you know is 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 this the right thing to do? <clears throat> One of the things I found, especially um, with team members, is that um, treating people fairly doesn't necessarily mean treating them the same. Uh, and, and I mean this in some way that um, somebody values, like let's say you have an artist who values, I don't know, flexibility, uh, but doesn't mind working the extra mile. And then you have somebody who loves forecastability. But so it's, it's just building those environments, making sure that the rules are fine for them. And both are happy, but they can be very different rules or even sometimes incentives. Um, to make sure that you know they're happy. Uh, on the whole, uh, I think you always need to have certain ground rules that apply to everybody, like treat everybody with respect. I mean, these are the no-brainers, right? Nobody gets a get out of jail free uh, free card for these. Uh, you know, just the basics need to be the same. But I think a lot of the things you should tailor. Um, you know, I'm sure HR has a great term for this, like a. In, uh, employer value proposition or something. But really what you're trying to do is to make sure that you tailor to the people's needs and to give them something that they need and value. Um, and rather than just giving, you know, everybody's not everybody's not a number. You know, this is like the Iron Maiden song. I'm not the number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a free man. <laughs> so, but I, mean, I think we need to treat people as individuals and, and also to tailor to them after the baseline there is a baseline like there are certain things that everybody needs to do because they just need to do it and after that fine we'll tailor everything else so would you have an example where you would say you did something in your environment where you really treated people differently but in doing so you know created like a fair environment where where people felt like they were appreciated uh, well okay i think working times are super easy and that's that's fine we don't need to go there. Um, I would say for, um, actually, holidays are not necessarily a bad one. Um, we have one or two people who have a passion for exploring the world. Um, and they go to like Peru or Guatemala and need to spend six weeks to get on top of some ancient Mayan or Incan temple. Sorry if I'm probably got the history wrong there, but <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't even be Aztec, <laughs> but, but you get the gist, like they need to do, they need to do that. And they would like to do something totally different from everybody else. Like, can we work some weekends? Can we do this, this, and this? And then I would like to take six weeks off to go explore the Aztec or Maya culture. And it's like, okay, fine. We can totally tailor to that. Does like, as long as your work is not, you know, impeded or whatever um, and, and you, you can do this we're more than happy to cope with that and in if somebody wants to be another one, like a total uh, an example where somebody needs absolute uh, focus on their work they they just are the kind kind of person like uh, we had uh, a very small office when we started Red Hill and still do uh, probably upgrading soon but you know small still but um, how, how many are you right really, now at the moment? Just so, uh, for the... so we're 47 uh, uh -huh. today. Uh, we were about like 12 in the beginning of last year. So it's, it's, it's gone up a fair bit and we're going to probably have about 70 or, you know, something in the you know, foreseeable future. But but still, um, you know, you're used to a little bit more quiet. And I saw one of our guys wearing two sets of headphones. Uh, in, in a room where they were working together and just went like, well, you know, would you mind, like, do you want to work alone somewhere? And then we kind of carved about uh, a part of our, you know, small office, but made sure that he had privacy so that he could actually work there, uh, mostly quiet, uh, because he just felt like uh, he was distracted by conversations around him. And the funny thing, obviously, is that after two months, he kind of misses conversations around him. So, <laughs> yeah. 
so since we're since we're talking about that uh, topic of um, you know different ways of um, working preference, um, I mean obviously there's the entire pandemic situation that we're in at the moment um, still uh, in, in you know many parts of the world. So uh, did that change anything in your approach to um, you know how you how you treat people, how you cater to their individual needs? Um, how, how do you, how are you dealing with this in general? I mean it's a question I like asking you know other uh, guests on the show as well. But in your particular case, since there's lots of leadership focus uh, that we have today, um, what did you need to do in order to deal with the situation? Well, I, I think it's also a good measure and a good opportunity. Um, we are now measuring how um, coherent uh, companies' cultures are, how uh, well they have communicated before. Do people understand the values? Do they understand what they're supposed to be doing? Or have they just been directed? Uh, and when I say directed, you know, um, are we, you know, companies who have basically micromanaged their, uh, their employees, like they're playing FIFA on a joystick, uh, are now in trouble. But companies who've given their employees and their team members a direction and a goal uh, and values uh, are perfectly fine because those people can um, act autonomously. And, and there's there's like um, there's a breadth of uh, military doctrine that you could go into uh, where you know certain uh, units have been built uh, to act from a top down. Uh, you know they won't act unless there is a top down order, whereas other military units have been built to uh, react to facts on the ground. They understand the big picture. They understand their rules of engagement, and they can actually just run. So I think the latter uh, are now succeeding and the ones who have been kind of more hierarchical and uh, less value driven or goal driven are now pretty impaired. So <laughs> I, I think on the whole, um, it, it's not necessarily like I know it's a tragedy. Uh, it's 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 a horrible situation. Um, but on the, on the whole, we are also seeing an emergence and maybe the, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I think from this, we'll learn, uh, but not only as an industry, but you know, the society on the whole. Did, um, you already change something in your immediate environment? Um, like the way you, I don't know, communicate in the, in the future, maybe not currently because you all, you still have to deal with the, the restrictions anyways, but are you thinking about changes that you want to introduce based on this, based on what you learned uh, during that time? Um, so I think for, for us, we were kind of in a position where uh, when we set Red Hill Games up, um, we have the mothership and the headquarters in Helsinki. We have a subsidiary in Cyprus. Uh, we had our lead programmer, in Sweden. And now, uh, in addition to that, we have uh, Kai, our community manager in Belgium, in Antwerp, and Zoe in Canada. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we've just, we've built uh, distributed development, uh, kind of, uh, where, yes, we have the mothership. Yes, that's where most of the people are. We try to get together once a month into one place um, and spend time together. But we had the infrastructure, we had the processes, all we needed to do was scale it up. Um, I think the one thing we needed to boost up was communications. And uh, we went pretty, pretty all in on comms. We had Discord, Slack, uh, you know, the regular Zoom meetings and, and stuff like that happening all the time. Uh, I think maybe the, the the best time I spent was I, I called through everybody uh, and just had a one-on-one -on -one chat with each team member. Um, and, and I think that was valuable. Uh, and I wish I had more time for that and I should probably double down on that in the future. Like if this happens again, I will make sure to have a one-on-one -on -one chat with everybody. I mean, it's already, it's already like 47 employees is 47 hours <laughs> roughly if you uh, spend yeah. the time. So I, I think it's great that you did it, but it's already quite a quite an amount of time. Obviously. It, 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 I mean, it does like honestly, the, the first round took me about 12 days. The second round took me about 16 days just to schedule those in. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it, it, it is quite a lot of time. 
But if you want to remain in touch with your people and you want to make sure that they have you know, an opportunity to ask, and it really depends on the culture. Like we, we have a culture where they can ask anything or challenge anything. If, like I'm, if, if there's a shit idea, I'd rather hear now than, than from yeah, the market. <laughs> yeah. You want to hear it from your own people and not from like later from the market later on, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so um, yeah, we kind of have that. So I, I really like talking to the guys because they're, they're honest and, and they, you know, they do give candid feedback. And also it, it, it's one of the particulars for us is um, I think we come together now from, I would say 15 or 16 different uh, countries and many people have relocated to Finland and imagine relocating through a pandemic. Like you move into a country, you get there, you're starting work, and then all of a sudden you're locked in your apartment. Yeah. Like, and we've we've hired nine people uh, through the pandemic, and, and that's you know it, it's it's you know you need to have a little bit of empathy. Like how how are those people feeling? Like are they getting the support they need? And luckily everybody's fine. Um, I think, you know, we're humans first and, you know, yeah, uh, it's just, we need to take care of those people. Like we're responsible for them moving over the world and, you know, and then being locked in for whatever, 12 weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And a friend of mine was actually hired um, to a um, studio in the Netherlands during the pandemic and he had the exact same experience that you were describing. You know, he, he got there actually over a weekend moving from, from Munich here <laughs> all the way to Amsterdam. <laughs> and then uh, and then he got there, he was lucky, he found an apartment remotely and and uh, he's been sitting there ever since because, you know, he I think he went to the office once because a couple of people met there, but then everyone went back home again. So it's a really strange experience getting to another country in particular and then uh, not even having the the experience of working with your uh, with the new guys uh, in the in the new environment, uh, so it's it's definitely a challenge for everybody. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think we're. I mean, we we always had regular sinks uh, just because of the remoteness of, of some of us. Um, so having the you know, there's a company wide you know sink on Friday. Uh, where we go through everything every month we go through the month's targets every quarter we have a longer strategic discussion so there's a cadence to what we do and uh, but i i kind of like i've come to love that because i i like the beat of a drum you know to say hey this is what we've we're going to say we're going to do this week this is what we're going to say we're going to do in a month this is what we're going to do in you know a quarter so i'm a, I'm a huge believer in kind of the okrs uh, or you know the book measure what matters yeah. um and, and just you can adapt that to your own style but just you know I, I don't believe in some kind of great strategic business plan being written uh i'm i'm much more kind of into an adaptive hey let's write the quarter's goals really specifically and let's have a big picture idea of where this you know business or game or studio is going uh, on the long term and you know does this quarter build on to the next and so forth like is it going in the right direction and i, I think that's actually been like um i've seen a lot of rejection of like business plans or you know things from artists and technical people and and even myself to be honest for the last years uh, business plans grow out of date very quickly uh, but if you have objectives and key results what you want to achieve those are actually much easier to maintain and keep up to date. So, I mean, for me, that's, that's been um, something, you know, I've, I've actually found really, really useful. And out of the last, last years, that's, that's probably one of, the, one of the bigger ones that um, I'd call a win. Uh, that just works. It, it, it's a tool. It's, it's not, you know, uh, a religion, but the tool seems to work. Yeah, and I, I agree. Actually, it's also one of the things that I, my previous company I, I helped introduce, um, and uh, that really made a difference. You know, giving people goals and and, yeah, and then adapting to changing circumstances, to a changing environment. Um, and if you compare that to 
like the long-term plan. I always love it when people ask the question, well, what's your five-year strategy? What do you, you know, what's your plan there? And uh, usually I say, like, I, I don't know, you know, to be honest, because the, the, the industry we work in is so fast-paced sometimes that I personally don't really plan longer than like two, three years into the future. Uh, and, I, and I have the feeling that a lot of the people in our industry also having trouble dealing with, with that if you try to nail something down, look into your crystal ball and, you know, and try to guess what's going to happen in five years down the road. Yeah. So um, I can really relate to to what you were doing there. So 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 um, one more thing about the about the pandemic situation. I mean, obviously you had your conversations with uh, the team members and and spent time with them, um, but it wasn't in person. I mean, not like really in person, but you probably used like Zoom, Slack, whatever whatever you did. Yeah. So, what aspects of like human to human interaction did you lose from your point of view? And and um, how did it make, how did it change leadership? Um, talking, for example, about, about topics like emotional intelligence, which is something that is so important these days in, in how you build teams and how you lead a company, um, how you create an environment for people to, to thrive in. But then all of a sudden, you don't really have the, the person in the same room, but you have them on the other side of computers. So how did that feel? And what are your thoughts on, on that? Um. I mean, I think we have to be honest. Um, you you do lose an element of human to human interaction uh, when when it's not happening in person. I mean that that just is a fact, um, and I think it's learning to cope with that that is important. Um, there there are people who are very vocal um, and who will bring their concerns to the front and that may consume too much of your time. I think the, the one thing I've learned, it's, it's the ones who are silent um, or who haven't said something that you should pay attention to. And, and that's, it's, you know, it goes into like, it's not even like let's spend, you know, 80% of your time or your best performers or you know, 20% of your problems. That's not the point. What I'm trying to say is, uh, People won't necessarily voice um, their issues, um, and people who voice their issues are maybe in some wound-up way in a better place because they can voice their issues. So let's say somebody actually has a family issue or there's something you know in their personal life that's a problem. They're not going to call the CEO. They're not going to chat with HR or whatever and say, "By the way, I have this kind of thing," you know, whatever crisis, divorce, whatever. They're never going to ping you, right? Um, so I think having that uh, effort of actually having the uh, unconditional uh, call, like it doesn't matter how you're doing, what you're saying, we're just going to chat, is super important. Because then it removes the discretionary part of the whole thing. Yeah, I guess because you open up as a CEO and are actually genuinely interested in that person, that encourages them to share things they, they usually wouldn't call you about, right? Yeah, but but uh, I think there's also there's there's a super uh, fine line here. Um, like we shouldn't pretend to be psychologists or you know therapists or whatever. That's not our job. Our job is to make sure that the people are happy and they're productive. And you know professional help, direct them, help them. You know go there if they need yeah. to, but. Um, in terms of our focus is here uh, and we should not you know go too far into the personal world because that you know we care about people we fundamentally do but uh, it's not our role to go in there uh, and we should respect you know that privacy as well and just you know have you know there I don't know I think there's a level where you enter you have that discussion and as a friend as a colleague as a boss you, you, you have that discussion. Uh, and this is more from 20 years of experience than now, like in the last six months. But you're not, um, you're not a therapist, right? Uh, and it, it's, it's a fine line to walk. Like how, how far do you go? Because you want to help people. You want them to be happy. You want them to be good. But also for your job, uh, you know, that's, that's not your role. And you know they need to find it elsewhere. So not becoming that, you know, 
places to go to is is also important if yeah. that makes any sense yeah, it, it does. I mean, and, and you couldn't do it for like 47 or in the future, 70 people. I mean, you you try to be there, but you could not, you know, have everybody on your couch and then, you know, work it out uh, with them uh, as much as sometimes, I mean, from my own experience, I sometimes wanted to help. But, um, you know, it's perfectly uh, right what you're saying, that uh, you need to direct them to other people to uh, actually get the support they might need. Yeah. And, you know, wargaming with 2000 developers, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be that guy. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely not. Yeah. So um, what's the role, um, talking a bit about culture now, so what's what's the role of you as a CEO or in general a CEO in a games company uh, in shaping culture? We talked about values a little bit before and, and defining those, obviously living those values. Um, What's the impact you would say you have on shaping the culture that you want to see in a studio? Um, so I think a CEO's role, uh, I mean, obviously evolves uh, with the company. Uh, it's it's a life cycle. Um, I think in some ways, uh, at let, let's say when Remedy was anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty people, it was like. In game terms, for me, it was very much a first-person shooter. Like, I, I knew exactly what we were doing. Um, and then jumping into wargaming with 2,000 people, it became a real-time strategy game where <laughs> it was more about, you know, managing resources and giving, you know, directions and policy, yeah. you know? Uh, I like the analogy. And, it's pretty cool. I never thought of it that way, but uh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it changes because you can't. Like, if you try to play, you know, first-person shooter and that much, it's just not going to work. And in a startup, it's very much, you know, it's SimCity, you're starting from nothing, right? Um, so uh, I, I think for me, like the role uh, needs to be the right one for the company. And th there's, a, there's um, a lot of CEOs who are super effective at certain stages of companies, like for startup inception, and then maybe a little bit of growth. But then when you need more process, structure, uh, you know, foundations, uh, you know, they're not the right person for that. Uh, and usually, there, I mean, there is a life cycle where CEOs exit. Um, I'd like to think I've been through various phases. And now I kind of get to revisit uh, going back. And now kind of like I have a vision of, quote unquote, you know, it's not back to the future. But, you know, you kind of see... Okay, if this grows at a hundred persons, we need this kind of structure. Yeah. I will never, I will never ever have this kind of, you know, whatever uh, shared resources because that never works because these projects can never share these because that will never work. Uh, or you know, we need a common HR structure because this makes sense. We need a com uh, common performance language so we can give people feedback in a common language for the foreseeable future. You know, it's just. Understanding where it will go, um, I think is, is you know, you've seen the phases and if it works, what are the next layers that will come on top? And it will never stay the same. Like, I've, and I think I said this last year on the talk we were talking about, but like, it, it's like, when would this change stop? One of our you know, uh, early, early folks asked at Remedy and I, I had to tell them like, stop when we die yeah, change will never stop you know, to, and it's good that it's there you know? yeah so um i think there i think from from a ceo perspective if you have in, an inquisitive mind uh, and you care about people you can't go terribly badly wrong like yeah. in general like in case you're willing to learn and accept new opinions and you actually care about people, uh, I, you know, there's, there's not, you know, those are, those are, I think the fundamentals, uh, but okay. Right now in the startup, yes, I'm doing a lot of hands-on stuff and wearing like three hats, but that's, that's kind of fun. I actually kind of enjoy doing hands-on work. You know, that's, that's how I started in the industry, like carrying fruit to the office. Uh, making the contracts, making the publishing contracts, the employment contracts, and then carrying more bananas. So, so <laughs> I, I, I don't actually, I, I don't find it, um, 
demotivating at all. I, I think it's kind of quaint in some ways. I actually like it because those bananas are, you know, they're, they're going to the guys who want fruit. <laughs> yeah. Or my, my guys. So I don't care. Like, and then we'll go back to the next million dollar deal. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. It's, it reminds me a lot of my time, um, you know, in my previous company when I uh, sometimes had conversations about you know the strategy for for certain games we were working on or kind of critical uh, topics about you know delays and everything. And then the next moment, I walk out that meeting room back to my office and I have conversation with the cleaning lady uh, about uh, she was also managing the fruit baskets uh, about uh, you know why there are so many bananas in the fruit baskets and so little pears because that uh, would was actually not an equal balance and. And I was like, okay, well, that's quite a, a change in topics. But then I, you know, sorted this out and, and actually enjoyed it because it, it kind of grounds you a little bit. Um, and I think that's very important. Uh, and also kind of delivered the mail in the company sometimes to people when I actually picked up my own and, and I brought it. And they were always like, why are you doing this? It's because and I was like, because, uh, you know, I like getting involved and like, you know, having the connection with, with you guys. And I, I guess it's, um, you know, some, some similarity to what you were saying about, you know, carrying the bananas to, um, to, uh, you know, other areas of the office. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and those, they, they will change, but I think what's important is, um, it's not the manifestation, but the value should be there. Yeah. Like, uh, you're there to serve the team. Absolutely. And, okay. You know, does it make always sense to spend your, you know, sometimes it's better to spend it on, you know, let's get something else strategic done yeah. that, that, you know, makes everybody's life better. Uh, but in some ways, like, it, I think it stems from a place like you actually care about the team. You're there to help the team. And you're also relatable somehow. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's always the feeling I had that, you know, if you're getting too distant, you're kind of that strategic thinker in the ivory tower, but your people don't feel a connection with you anymore, then I think you, you lost touch with a big part of the company, and especially in an environment like you're in a startup environment or like a more indie environment in, in the games industry. Um, personally, I believe it's very important to still uphold that connection with the people that you have on your team. Yeah, and 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 also um, just being able to articulate. Um, I mean, basically, why you exist? Like, what? Like, why is it worthy to? Like, why are you here? You know, why? I don't know. Like, having a having the leadership actually live uh, and be genuine about. You know what the environment is and what kind of company you want to create what kind of environment you want to create if you want to create something sustainable and good and happy uh, where talent can thrive um, is, is I don't know uh, just being able to convey that uh, you do that not only by talking but mainly through action yeah so if you talk about an environment uh, where people can thrive um, you know oftentimes I, I have a feeling that it also requires kind of building a, a safe space so people feel they can share their opinions and they're they're appreciated and they're valued and like you, you said before you know i rather want to hear from my own team uh, and not later when it's when it's too late so how do you create um that that space from your point of view and, and kind of you know build that culture around it so i mean safe safety is um I, I think it's super, super necessary for any creative endeavor. Um, and if, if you start to think about it, because anything creative is, is kind of risky. Either you're combining different ideas or you have a new idea, um, or it's something that hasn't been tried before. I mean, that's kind of ish, the definition of creativity, right? Yeah. Um, to, to build something new. Uh, and that always entail, entails risk. And if you can't fail, um, then you can't, you know, you can't really be creative. Or, or then you have these quasi organizations that kind of like hide it and then package it into something and then say, you know, would you maybe like this? And that's not the point. Like it's much quicker to have an organization that can fail. And for me, like from a game dev side, what it really means, we're testing super, super early and we're testing super often. Uh, at Red Hill, uh, we barely got started and we were testing 
I'm going to say five or six months in with white boxed environments uh, with uh, an external vendor, uh, player research. And we did that every quarter, every 90 days, Canada, UK, Finland. And then we did uh, tests this February, and then we did a closed alpha this June. So we're testing all the time to get feedback. It's not perfect, but you need to test to you know see how things are working. And I think for me, that's that's creatives also being vulnerable to getting their work critiqued early when it's not done, and they know it's you know imagine like imagine being an art director on a game where you know it's like this level is sixty percent done, and we're going to test it anyway. Um, and it's hard for them. That's their pride. That's kind of their professional thing. But having that test done on that level, you're not necessarily testing for art. You're testing for other things. And then you're going to hear a lot of noise about, you know, this isn't, you know, uh, you know whatever. It's not perfect or it doesn't look pretty or whatever. Um, they, they still need to be okay with that. And But our guys are, I think they're mature enough, uh, certainly on the lead, lead level, where they go, okay, Let's get feedback. Let's get feedback super early and get on top of it rather than letting. Sorry, I'm I'm drifting off topic, <laughs> but yeah. No, but it's I mean it's it's obviously connected because it's a culture of encouraging failure in the beginning and learning from it and then making it better afterwards. And that that's that's at least the way I yeah. understood you. And and I think that is absolutely necessary in in game development. And I'm always surprised there's still companies out there where. You know, they develop a game, they take it to a certain level, and they're they don't want to show it to anyone. And uh, and then at some point, they're super surprised. You know, if people see it for the first time, and it's like, oh wow, we we didn't think that. You know, and and at first, <laughs> you, you you can't really build a game without opening yourself up and and kind of you know sometimes from a game design point of view, um, be vulnerable to you know players criticizing what you've done. You know, and and that's yeah. that's always for me the eye opener when I see. You know, uh, no. people working on a game in front of a, uh, you know, of testers, and and they, you know, they play it and they make comments, and then, you know, they they struggle to to keep quiet because they were like, oh, you just have to do this, or oh, why don't you understand uh, this element of the game? But that's actually what you need, I think, if you want to make a great game, right? Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think it's changing. Like it, it, like previously, we did no testing whatsoever. Like, honestly, on Max Payne 1, Max Payne 2, not really. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, uh, By the way, I loved uh, the games for a long time. Those were my favorites, and so really, really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but but e even, uh, I'd say even in 2.10, uh, with Alan Wake, uh, put it to you this way. You work on a game for five and a half years, four years and whatever, ten months into it, you put it into testing. How much are you going to change? Yeah. Like really? <laughs> so, uh, but that's exactly the problem. That's a, that's a conversation I have a lot. That well, you know, when you when people are, you know, investing so much time into something before you finally have somebody else look at it. Um, you have it in online games a lot, by the way. You know, you take you take it. You, you I see those plans. Like uh, we need until that time, and then we have alpha completed. All the features are in, and then we have closed beta for two months and open beta for three months, and then then at some point there's a launch. I'm always like, you know, are you actually wanna? Do you actually wanna take community feedback in? Do you wanna change anything about it? Because if you don't, then pretty much forget about the beta phase. <laughs> they don't really make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And that's that, that's always uh, interesting to me that um, that is is changing, like you said, but it's slowly changing uh, from my point of view for some uh, companies at least. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. So. Um, there's one topic I wanted to, to touch on uh, as well as when you build a team. We, we talked about this in the beginning a little bit. Um, what role plays diversity? Uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about uh, gender in particular. Um, I'm talking about people coming from you know different backgrounds, be it nationality or be like certain ways of thinking, um, uh, different skill sets, obviously. So how important is that to you? And is that something you actively look for when you hire new people onto the team? Uh. Okay, uh, I think we are 47 people and whatever, 14 to 16 different nationalities. Sorry, we never check passports when we hire people. So I'm going by, by, by chats uh, and, and, 
and some of the folks have two passports. Um, so I don't think gender or nationality um, define talent at all. And what we're looking for is talent. Yeah. Um, so um, I feel super, super strongly about um, respecting people and, and that, you know, putting gender and nationality aside, hierarchy as well. Like, how do we treat uh, people who are junior? Um, how do we treat people who are senior? And, and for, for me, one of the key things for Red Hill, and this is, goes through all our founders, like I, I just genuinely know that they believe in this, they will treat the person who comes to empty the trash can with the same kind of respect as they would treat a vice president from a listed company coming yeah. to visit. And, and that for me is super important. They're, humans have a fundamental value. Like I, I don't care how brilliant or stupid they are. Every person has a fundamental value. Like um, even if they're not good at their job, they still have a value. And, and that for me is, is, is just the basis. And, and then, you know, all the, you know, gender stuff and whatever comes on top. Like just every person has a value. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I, I think uh, when, when we set out on this, I know, know, know for a fact that, um, you know, the co-founders, Katya and Bilosh and, and Moon, uh, share the same values and we treat people with respect. And, you know, throughout like 20 years, have I seen different happen uh, you know either problems or moments that I'm super proud of yes in the industry um, but um, I think on the whole all the teams I've worked with have rallied to support people who are in a vulnerable position um, like I can't name a name a time where somebody was either coming out or, or changing jobs uh, that you know people wouldn't uh, be supporting them It's always been there. All the teams rallied together. I haven't had a, had a bad moment. Well, that's that, that's certainly good um, to hear. I mean, obviously, right now, uh, you know, we, we're in times where sometimes there are. You know, certain stories um, coming up about uh, the video games industry as a whole and how, uh, you know, how people are treated, um, especially women in the industry. So that's uh, why I always find it interesting to he hear certain perspectives and I would share your, um, uh, your or, or second your thoughts on, you know, looking for the talent. Um, but, uh, but the one element I was wondering is, um, do you feel like... Um, that uh, once the talent is is there and you have the right skill set you need for something, do you think that having diverse teams, multinational teams, adds a certain component to to game development? So do you do you actually enjoy having teams with all those different different backgrounds, or would you say sometimes it's it's easier to connect if people have kind of the same I don't know similar background, uh, same kind of upbringing or same kind of history in the games industry? So um, and that, that's a very, very good question. Um, we tried super, super hard, even at Remedy, like early in the day, uh, we had had, I think, three people from not Finland, and we were at 20 or something. And we insisted that everything be done in English. Mm -hmm. And this is like uh, 20 years, well, 18 years ago or something to maintain the continuity when the people from abroad come. And, and that, was, that, was the, that was the view on the long term. People from abroad will come. And then they did. Like, uh, I think when I left, we had over 50% of the last kind of recruits had come from outside of Finland. And that was kind of a, a, a very clear directive to us. Um, I, th I think do do more diverse teams make better games? Uh, I think they can. Uh, I think the saddest ones are who are insular. Like it, it's it was um, like in some ways uh, I've I've seen a few teams, and this is more fifteen years ago or something, where their documentation was in Finn or 
check or something. And nobody from the outside could actually come into that team and actually yep. work as a programmer because everything was done in that language. I haven't really seen that happen uh, in any you know, recent bad memory. Um, I'm actually super happy. Like, I, I don't know, it gives me some, it's not even utilitarian. Maybe we have a better game because we have people from you know, 50 different, 60 different nationalities. Um, but it also gives me joy. Um, I like seeing people from Finland, France, um, Saudi Arabia, Israel, India, Canada, North America, America, you know, come together, even Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> even Sweden. Well, that, that means a lot to say that. <laughs> yeah. Come, come, come together and, and build a game. It, it just gives me joy. Yeah. Um, and which, which is beyond like, hey, this is a good thing for the product or for the business. I think it's, it's nice to see that happen. Uh, and uh, I, I can't articulate specifically why, uh, but um, there, there is an element of, you know, we're all, with, all on the same planet, we're coming together, we're you know, working together. You know, our challenges are going to be bigger than national challenges. And, you know, all that, the whole rat hole of, you can't solve a virus or you can't solve a climate crisis, you know, through national means. No. And, and I, I, think, I think there's a, there's a bigger topic somewhere there, but this microcosmos is what I can kind of quote unquote control and having that and everybody come together is, is, is good and it's healthy. I agree. I, I can say the, the dynamics that you see once you create that environment and, and that actually happens and people from all over the world and all kind of believes, you know, work together on something is pretty powerful. I've mean, experienced it myself, similar to the story that you shared. I'm you know, again, at my, my previous yeah. company, we were a purely German company. Documentation was in German. Uh, so it was very difficult to bring people uh, on board from, from other countries. And um, then at some point, you know, we decided we need to make that shift. And it was one of the things that I triggered in, in my CEO role there to become more international, to have English as the, the you know, the, the common denominator, yeah. uh, to have uh, the opportunity at some point to bring people on board. And then, you know, from three nationalities in the beginning, which was German, Austrian, and Italian, all, even the German-speaking part of Italian, <laughs> of Italy. So, yeah. so yeah. From, from being completely German, kind of we, we moved it to, I think, when I left last year, we had like 30 nationalities roughly. Um, that that was that is the most powerful thing that happened, and and honestly, if people ask me what was the best thing about the time there, then this is usually the answer I give. It's it's not about the actual product; it's about shaping this this team or help shape the team um, of people of diverse backgrounds. That was really cool, and I like you. I couldn't really, you know, put my finger on what exactly it is there, but it just feels right, <laughs> and, and that's that was what I enjoyed about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me ask you this. I mean, like, um, do you feel like if, if, if you went back and looked at them today and you looked at your team maybe a few years back, let's say five or maybe eight years back, would you say that they're better because they're more international or worse off? Like, it's a loaded question, this is shit, but like, how do you feel about it? <laughs> no, I, I definitely feel they're better off. Otherwise, I wouldn't have wouldn't have done this. Um, it was um, it was in, intentional. I, I wanted to change that, um, uh, the approach of the company. And looking back, I feel the teams there are in a, in a better shape because they have different angles to look on, at things. And sometimes it's the cultural background. Sometimes it's... The, it's really the fact that um, you know, for for certain games, the uh, certain kind of personality type was helpful to have on board to understand the the actual players better out there. So there's there's all kind of different uh, things that the diversity added to um, to those teams, and that's why I think um, they are better off and they um, they have a good foundation for um, you know everything that that's to come. Um, obviously now I'm in a different environment. Yeah, it's one that I, that I, you know, did not build <laughs> or did not help yeah. shape, um, at least not for a long time. So, so now I'm more like the analyst trying to understand, you know, how, how things are built and what I can do to, you know, to get it in a certain direction. Uh, that's very different obviously, but, um, I, I do believe that uh, more diverse teams are 
better off and better prepared to make great games. But they need, like you said, they need to have the talent. They need to have complementary skills to actually build something. And I also believe in um, trustful relationships between people. So um, that that's why we talked about this in the beginning. It's why I do think that um, people need to come together um, over a certain amount of time. And if you've gone through uh, a lot together, then you are a stronger team at some point. Um, if you don't break apart before. <laughs> so. Yeah, no. No, it's, it's, it's like a trial by fire. Absolutely. You know? yeah. 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 So um, one thing that like kind of a, as, a, as a final topic or subtopic I wanted to talk about is um, uh, the ability to hire talent um, these days. I mean, obviously you're, you're growing. You said your plan is to go from like 47 to about 70 people and you know who knows where it goes. Then at my company right now, we're always looking for talent. What are your observations in terms of um, getting the talent on board that you need? Is it harder now than it used to be, and or, or not? Or and what are your? Um, do you have any observations in terms of uh, what people expect that join the games industry? Uh, is that any different from like it was? I don't know, ten years ago. So uh, I think on the whole, uh, we're super lucky to be to be frank. Uh, I don't think I've seen any moment in the games industry in my life where there's been so much talent um, globally uh, available. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being naive, but uh, I have, like, I, I remember back to what it was 10 years ago or five years ago, whatever. It, it's like, on the whole, I'm, I'm super grateful for the talent out there. Uh, and there seems to be a broader breadth of it. Uh, I think there's specialist areas that tend to be harder uh, to to find people for. But uh, like on the whole, um, there's more talent and there's also more opportunity. So I guess uh, there's a healthy competition uh, between people actually offering great employment opportunities. And the good thing is you start to have these maybe I'll call them clusters uh, in the world, where if you move to work for a company, you're, you know, if you don't want to move your family around after you leave the company, you know, there is an opportunity to do something else. Uh, and I think there starts to be those clusters around the world. You know, we've, we've seen it in Montreal, uh, we see one in Helsinki, uh, maybe something happening in Austin that's, you know, big enough. And, you know, you know there, there starts to be these places where it's not necessarily you have to uproot your entire family to yeah. go to another city to work for another studio, and and for Europe, um, I, you know, I know, you know, Berlin has its own thing, you know, France has its own circles, but there there is opportunity there, uh, which I think in the beginning was kind of a friction thing, and I'm I'm looking at this very meta uh, or macro scale, uh, but you know if if we when we were remedying Helsinki. And it was only Remedy or some mobile game companies. If you came to work for a console company, there was nobody else. Now, you know, Red Links and Yubi are doing something, Housemark's doing something, and you know, maybe other people are doing something that's intersecting. Maybe mobile phones are, you know, or mobile games are getting more mature, so you need a little bit of animation. So if you're an animation guy at Housemark, you can actually go work for Supercell or Robbie or whatever. So, you know, there is a little bit of that. So we have about 3,000 people in Helsinki working in, the, sorry, in Finland working in the games industry, which is you know, a healthy you know, uh, ecosystem. So I don't know, there's the ecosystem uh, argument <laughs> from, from, from my side uh, that, that, I, that I'd say uh, helps people move around. Um, I still look for the same things, like if we honestly go uh, looking for um, talent uh, in, in, in who's coming into the industry. Uh, it used to be a lot uh, around, have you shipped a mod or have you done something or have you gotten something out the door? I think now more than ever, it's like, what have you actually done as a student project or something? Like, I would like to see something shipped and completed uh, if, if you're uh, really, um, you know, getting into the industry. I think it's important to show you've actually accomplished something and got, gotten something out the door. 
as an artist, you know, having a portfolio of things you've done that are relevant um, is is important. Um, you know, and I I don't think those have changed in twenty years. Like I I think getting something done is always valuable, even if it's not great. Uh, you you got something done. You completed something. Yeah, I I agree. Do you think that um, the power that lies with the talent now is is stronger than it used to be in the past so do people or are people more reluctant to join certain companies because there might be other great offers or is there more are they more demanding from your point of view when you try to get people into the studio than they used to be um so if if you go um back back in time uh if if you look at power Uh, you could say traditionally power was with either capital or perhaps with labor. Um, I think now, and this is a distinction, it's not labor, it, it's with talent. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think in, in many ways there's more than enough money in the world right now, especially, that's looking for uh, a place to go. And there's not enough talent to actually fill that. I like, like the way you like, put this, there's there's enough money in the world looking for a place to go. Yeah. That's a good yeah. way to put it in. No, yeah. I mean, sadly, I mean, seems seems the way, you, well, yeah. I mean, even talk talk to the banks and yeah, look absolutely. at the investors. Yeah. I mean, there there is, uh, they're, they're down to very little uh, choices. Uh, if, if they put them in zero response, they're, you know, I don't know about you, but My bank pays me a negative premium yep. on, my, on my money. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of those issues lately. Yeah. yeah. So um, we, we could obviously go on for for like a long time talking in depth about all those leadership um, uh, topics and, and those subtopics. Um, but I, at this point, I want to thank you for um, spending the time to talk uh, with me today about this. I think there was so many valuable insights for um, all different levels of uh, aspiring developers or people that are already established in the industry, um, because that's what we aim for at DevCom, obviously, to um, provide something for all kind of different uh, target groups. So um, thank you very much again, uh, Matthias, for taking the time today to do this. Um, I'm definitely looking forward uh, for the post-pandemic time where we can <laughs> meet up again and uh, continue this conversation. Um, so it was, a, it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. And sorry for the long and wondering, <laughs> wondering uh, wild ride we took today. But, no, but it was I, fun. But I think Thank it was you. fun and I think it's interesting for our audience uh, to listen to that. Thank you very much again. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to a DevCom podcast produced by Sven Fossin. Executive producer, Stefan Reichardt. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.